Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. One of the many things that Israel from the inside, as we call this podcast series, tries to do is to focus on dimensions of Israeli life that have nothing to do with the conflict. So often our discussions of Israel, of Israeli life, of Israeli politics, etc., are all really focused on issues having to do with Israel and its neighbors, and obviously those are critically important issues, morally, diplomatically, militarily, politically, and so forth. But it's by no means everything that's happening in Israel, and what we're trying to do in this series is also to meet with people and speak with people, learn from people who are doing fascinating things in Israeli life, having nothing to do with that conflict. And today I have the privilege of uh, sitting and talking with Rav Aaron Leibowitz, who is very involved in the head of a, uh, an organization called Chupot, which we'll learn about a little bit from him in a minute. Uh, we're really doing very interesting things in the world of Jewish religious life that we'll hear about now. So Rav Aaron, first of all, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure. And uh, why don't we begin by just having you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you come from, your English gives you a way that you're not native-born Israeli. Okay, so... I was born in New York, but raised in Berkeley, California. My, uh, my grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi in New York. My father was the Orthodox rabbi in Berkeley in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And when I was 16, my family made Aliyah. So, my, so I'm really at home, both in, in English and in Hebrew. I finished high school in Israel. I served in the army, um, educational officer in the Israeli army, and um, studied uh, for the rabbinate here in Israel, took my tests, tests of the Israeli chief rabbinate. The listeners will realize the irony of that later on in our conversation. Um, but my smicha is actually from Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, um, whose yeshiva I studied in, in Efrat, and Rabbi Chaim Ravender, which are two names which some of the Anglo community may recognize. Um, and uh, I currently live in Yerushalayim. I'm the rabbi of a very special community, some would call it a neo-Hasidic community in Nachlaot in Yerushalayim called Va'anitvila. Also involved to some extent in municipal politics. I sat on Jerusalem City Council for two and a half years in the previous term with the pluralistic Yerushalmin party as an orthodox representative. And, um, and most of my work is in Chupat, which we're going to discuss. Great. So tell us a little bit about what Chupot is, where the idea came from, what it does, who it serves, and so forth. So Chupot was really born under, under another name, Hashkacha Pratit, uh, which, is, which is actually still the name of our nonprofit, the umbrella nonprofit that we're working under. Um, Hashkacha Pratit is a little bit of a play on words. It means private supervision, but it also means divine providence. Um, and 
Hashkachah Pratit was founded in 2013 to challenge the monopoly of the chief rabbinate over kosher supervision in Israel. Um, so that's the plan words, to take it out of the power politics and give it back into the hands of God. And, um, and to some extent, it was, a, it was a statement in favor of the, the natural, healthy correction that, private, that a private market and private enterprise can create. Uh, we know that some of the most reputable, reputable kashrut agencies in the world, like the OU and the Star-K, uh, uh, were, were developed in a competitive environment. And the chief rabbinate of Israel, with a monopoly over kashrut, is considered today one of the least reputable um, agency, kashrut agencies in the world. So we, um, we started in, in, in restaurants here in, here in Jerusalem, and it was a five-year five battle, which started very much as an uphill battle with very little support within the Orthodox community. But within five years, had really, had really proven itself um, as a proof of concept. Um, we found ourselves in Supreme Court twice, and um, after the second Supreme Court hearing, we won a stamp of approval for our alternative model, which sort of bypassed the legal boundaries, and um, and then the Tsohar rabbinic organization began to make uh, noises that they were interested in going into kashrut. And we already were interested in expanding to other areas, challenging the monopoly of the Rabbanut in other areas. So we actually approached Sohar and suggested that they take the Kashrut agency that we built. So Hashkacha Prati became Sohar Pikuach Mazon. We made an exit, so to speak. Um, that means Sohar was food supervision, basically. That's right. So Sohar, um, uh, uh, ostensibly a Kashrut agency, but the way the law works the, the monopoly in Israel is anchored in a prohibition of using the word kasher. In other words, basically, the, you can only use the word kosher in, a, um, in an enterprise context if you have a certif certification from the Rabbanut. So Tzohar can't use the word kosher either, so, so that, therefore the name. Well, that may change because we're actually, uh, even these weeks, actually seeing the Bennett government do all kinds of things. But we'll come back to that towards the end of our conversation. Tzohar moves in, you give them the kosher supervision business, so to speak, and you move into chupot, which is obviously the Hebrew word for canopies, it's the plural of chuppah from weddings, and you try to do something equally radical, I guess, in the world of weddings, and what is that? Um, yes, I mean, some would say it's more radical, because weddings are considered to be a more sensitive area, um, there's, there's more at stake, um, well, I suppose... The, the, the kashrut, the kosher status of your steak may, may be at stake if you're going out to eat in a restaurant. But here we're talking about issues of personal status, um, uh, dangers of bigamy, of get refusal, um, divorce complications, illegitimate children, which are called mamzerim, which are very difficult issues in halakha. Um, so, so, you know, while we knew that this was more delicate territory, we also knew that the monopoly of the, of the chief rabbinate in the area of area of marriage um, is also to detriment of hundreds of thousands of Israelis, and in my eyes, um, in the detriment of halacha of Torah. Uh, so that, that we, we we had an eye on it for a while, and we realized um, that it would be. It would be dangerous to, to enter that territory before the kashrut was tied up to some extent because we didn't want to jeopardize the, what we had built. So you're working within a halachic, within a Jewish legal framework. It's an orthodox organization committed to Jewish law, the letter of Jewish law. Um, so within that framework, why don't you give us an example of a few different kinds of people that you can serve or will serve 
that the chief rabbinate cannot serve or will not serve? Who are these people? So the people who come to Chupot can, can be divided into two categories. So there are the people who we call them uh, um, Rabbanut denied. Um, and most of, those, most of those couples are actually immigrants, um, the vast majority from, from the former Soviet Union or the Eastern European bloc, um, who have a difficult, a difficult time proving their, their halachic Jewish status. So according to Orthodox Jewish law, um, you're Jewish if your mother is Jewish. And, and um, as opposed to that, according to the law of return, you have the right to citizenship in Israel if you have any Jewish ancestry. And so one the, Jewish grandparent, basically, right? Yeah, up, up to a Jewish grand, one Jewish grandparent. So yeah, the, just to, to give everybody the background, ironically, that's actually based on the Nazis' determination of who was a Jew. According to the Nazis, if you had one Jewish grandparent, even if you weren't technically Jewish because it was your father's father, let's say, for example, as far as they were concerned, that made you, I don't know what the word is, not eligible, but that made you fall under the rubric of the people that the Nazis wanted to exterminate. And in a kind of ironic and... Uh, sort of thumb-in-the-eye response to that, the Jewish state said anybody who's Jewish enough to be killed then is Jewish enough to come here so they can get into Israel under the law of return, but they're not technically, according to Jewish religious law, Jewish. So there are people who live in Israel, they're citizens of the state of Israel, they've been brought in by the law of return, but as far as the Orthodox religious establishment is concerned, they're not Jewish because their mother's not Jewish, their mother's mother wasn't Jewish, etc. Right, and it's actually much more complicated than that. Because anybody who's immigrated from those countries, or the children of anybody who's immigrated from those countries, there is no record in Israel today whether they are halakhically Jewish or not. In other words, um, it's, it's not as if when they immigrated under the law of return, anybody investigated, whether it was their mother or their father or their grandmother, which means anybody who's come on Aliyah from Russia, and as we know, there's been a vast uh, uh, um, Russian immigration. Was it a million people? Um, I, don't, I can't even give you an exact number, but, but we know that there are hundreds of thousands who are not eligible to marry in the Rabbanut. Um, and um, I think the last figure is 400,000 Israelis who don't have the established credentials necessary to get married in their own country. And they're a citizen and they're not eligible to get married here, which is, which is a travesty. And it's a travesty in my eyes, which is being perpetrated in the name of Torah, and that's very painful. It's even worse because many of them are halakhically eligible to get married. There's just no record proving it. And, and so the Rabbanut, the chief rabbinate, requires those people to go through a process called Beirut Yahadut, a clarification of their Jewish status, which basically is an investigative process, which is a very unpleasant investigative process where you're interviewed and you have to produce documents and you might have to have somebody go back to your country of Oregon, origin to search for documents. Um, and according to the chief rabbinate's own records, 94% of the people who go through that process are approved. Um, and which means that we are subjecting vast amounts of Israelis to, to a, a process which questions their, their, their Judaism um, in order to weed out a very small number of, of applicants who are not halakhically Jewish, who may even have owned up to it themselves if they had been invited to. Um, so many Orthodox um, halachic authorities are of the opinion that this is not necessary. As a matter of fact, the chief rabbi of Israel, the Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, the late great Rav Ovadia Yosef, who was very controversial and who I was not a big fan of for many reasons. But a halachic expert 
unparalleled, really, in the world. A halachic expert unparalleled, and, and also a moderate halachic expert. He was not moderate on many political issues, which some of us took difference with. But, but halachically, he was moderate, and he wrote an extensive responsa, where he said that the immigrants from the former Soviet Union are Jewish until proven otherwise. The default is to assume that they're Jewish, if they claim that they are. Um, there was another opinion, an opinion of the ultra-Orthodox halachic authority of the day, um, Rav Yashiv, who ruled otherwise, that they are not Jewish until they prove that they are. And unfortunately, the Israeli chief rabbinate, which is under very heavy ultra-Orthodox influence, what we call here Haredi influence, has ruled like Rav Yashiv. Um, and this has created a very difficult situation. So, so a, lot of, a lot of the people who come to us are either immigrants or descended from immigrants. Um, and you, it's important to understand, um, when, when I say descended from immigrants, it could be second or third generation, which means they are sabras. They are native Hebrew speakers. They served in the army. Sometimes the first time anybody brings into question whether they're Jewish or not is when they go to get married. And um, it's, it's, it's extremely painful. So, so many of that, of that demographic come to us, even if they know that they could prove that they're Jewish, in, uh, in, in protest and in opposition, you know, really they say, no, I'm not going to let anyone bring, that, bring my Judaism into question. Uh, you know, and, um, so that's one segment. Um, there's another large segment who come to us who are perfectly eligible to get married through the Rabbanut, and they ideologically choose not to. Either these are um, ideologi- you know, highly ideological um, Israelis who are opposed to the monopoly of the chief rabbinate, that's a small amount, um, but many come to us also because of feminism. Um, the chief rabbinate is, is notorious for discriminatory practices against women, especially in the divorce, in, in the divorce courts, the religious divorce courts. And um, there's a very high level of awareness in Israel about this because it's, there's been extensive media coverage. And a lot of women um, say, I, don't, I want nothing to do with the chief rabbinate. Um, as a matter of fact, many women and many couples don't want their don't want their status as a married couple read on the record in Israel at all. And we have, we have couples who get married with us, and according to Jewish law, they're married, but they live under common law in Israel. In other words, they receive the rights of a married couple under common law in Israel. It's called Yiduim B'Tzibor, or a publicly known, quote-unquote, couple. Um, and, and they're not registered as married because, because um, even though they theoretically could choose, let's say, to go to Cyprus or Berlin or if they're U.S. citizens the States and get married there and register here with a civil marriage. So it is possible to not go through the Rabbanut and register as married in Israel, but then you would have to go through the Rabbanut to get divorced. So that's another, that's another piece I would say. It's about, right now it's about um, one-third of our, of our couples are, are not eligible to get married in the Rabbanut without an investigation of their Judaism. And two-thirds are either um, just choosing to have nothing to do with the Rabbanut or are, or are driven for, 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 by, by, um, by egalitarianism or awareness of women's rights to come to us. Right, so just to fill people in a little bit, one of the, to me as an Israeli and probably to you as an Israeli also, one of the deeply disturbing dimensions of the chief rabbinate these days is that what should be a source of inspiration to bring people closer to Jewish life is actually one of the great turnoffs to Jewish life. People who are not religious or 
minimally religious or not at all knowledgeable or somewhat knowledgeable encounter the main religious and political force of the rabbinate as off-putting, as not open to women, as, as you were saying about somebody else not that long ago, often saying things about non-Jews, which we would kind of, you know, it just makes our blood, you know, whatever the phrase is. Um, and so you have a situation where, ironically, people outside the chief rabbinate actually have to undo some of the damage that the chief rabbinate is doing to make Judaism warmer, more embracing, more understanding, etc., and to bring people in. Now, what's the status of people who get married under chupot in terms of the state recognizing their marriages? And what's the sort of legal dimension of your working outside of the rabbinate? Okay. Well, of course, any country um, seeks to, to um, require married couples to register. It's, uh, it's, it's a common denominator in all modern societies, um, especially societies where bigamy is against the law that there should be a public registry of who's married and who is not. Um, the problem is that in Israel, where there's no separation of religion and state, um, that, that becomes the vehicle which gives the chief rabbinate uh, the monopoly on marriage. The, the, the amendment to the law, which is relevant to what we're doing, says that anyone who gets married in Israel and doesn't register the wedding is liable for two years in prison, um, and that's for the rabbi and the couple. Um, now, now, it's important to take note um, if somebody gets married in Israel with a reform rabbi or a conservative rabbi, as many do, well, many is relative, but as is happening today in Israel, um, they're not in violation of that law because Israeli law doesn't recognize a reform wedding as a, as a wedding because of the lack of separation of religion and state. Only an Orthodox wedding will be recognized as a wedding in Israel. Um, so there are uh, weddings taking place outside the Rabbanut for, for years. Um, there's also an organization called Havaya, which is... Um, which is a, a, a run by Israel Chofshit, which is a, a secular a secular Israeli um, interest group um, or um, or lobby, and they have a project which does secular Israeli weddings. Um, what we're adding to the mix is is the, the weddings which we're performing are recognized as weddings, and they're not being registered in Israel. They're not recognized in Israel. They're not recognized because the only way to register a wedding right now is through the Rabbanut. As a matter of fact, there was a Supreme Court case brought. By, by an organization called Mavoy Satum last year, where they tried to force the, 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 the government to register a couple who had, who had done a, an Orthodox wedding outside the Rabbanut, and the Supreme Court upheld the, the chief rabbinate's position, that they were not eligible for registry. Um, so we, over the past few years, have been building a movement, which today is about 600 couples. So that's 600 couples that you've already done weddings for. 600 couples who have gotten married with Kupot. By the end of 2021, we imagine it will be 1,000 couples who ostensibly are in violation of this law and are theoretically racking up prison years. Is this cumulative? In other words, you do five such marriages, you can go to prison for 10 years? Not only is it not clear whether the... Whether the, the uh, these punitive measures are cumulative. The state attorney's position today, and it's a written position, is that this law is not enforceable. Um, there's a conservative rabbi in Haifa, Dov Chayun, who was, who was um, investigated a year and a half ago. He was actually pulled out of his house in the early morning by the police. Six o'clock in the morning, the police knocked on his door and made an appointment for him to present himself at 10 a.m. for an investigation. By 8 a.m., the state attorney had given instructions to cancel the investigation. Because the law, which was kind of slipped in a back door during negotiations over a clause in, um, in Jewish marriage uh, uh, um, 
regulation was so poorly written that it's his, it's his position, it's not enforceable. So, so today what we tell our couples is our recommendation is for them to perform a civil marriage abroad and register as married because then they've registered. Again, the law speaks about couples who have not attempted to register, but we know that not all the couples are registering. We know that some of them are um, establishing their, their um, status as a, a common law uh, household. And we tell them, in theory or in violation of the law, we don't believe that it will be enforced. And, so, and that's what our legal team have told us, that we have to be up, we have to be up front um, our position is, and this is what we said in the Kashrut also, for years, the first three years of our Kashrut initiative, we were being accused as being lawbreakers, um, besmirched you know, in, in, on primetime television as being, as being um, lawless um, anarchists. When it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court upheld our, our legal position, and it's our contention that the same thing will happen here. In other words, if... And we, we don't believe they're going to take us to court very quickly because they, they also see the inevitability of the outcome. The chances that someone in Israel is going to be thrown in prison for getting married are next to nil. Um, and the legislation was written in such an obtuse way that it was that, that, that even if the rabbin wanted to enforce it, they probably would not be able to. Well, I'm comforted because I actually did my kids' weddings in Israel. And my kids who marry, are Jewish and married people about whose mm-hmm. Jewishness there was no question uh, are ideologically opposed to working under the rabbinate and therefore wanted to get married Davka by somebody who was not recognized by the rabbinate. I did the wedding. And um, sometimes I say to myself, you know, if there's Wi-Fi in jail and no faculty meetings, I could actually use a couple of years <laughs> of respite. But in all seriousness, I, we all understood that it's not, it, it's not serious. And they are, as you say, you do imbatsibur, they're recognized publicly, even though they're not registered as married couples. And in fact, our son... Uh, just had a baby about a little bit less than two weeks ago, and I didn't even realize this when our daughter had her kids, but um, he had to go back to the hospital a few days after they got out of the hospital and actually register paternity. In other words, he had to actually formally declare that he's the father of the baby, and his wife, I guess, had to sign something saying that was the case, which I wasn't, I wasn't at all aware that this happened. But anyway, so even in our own family, we're kind of recognizing some of what you're saying about couples who, uh, not registering. Let's take a step back for a second, though. So you've been involved in the breaking the monopoly of Kashrut, which may have moved significantly forward in the last couple of weeks under legislation being promoted by the Bennett government. Tremendous Haredi anger about it and threats about this and that, which so it'll either happen or it won't happen, but or it'll happen in some degree. But you've been involved in really breaking one of the great strangleholds of the rabbinate, which was over kosher certification. Now you have been exceedingly effective in breaking another stranglehold, which is the Orthodox rabbinate over the, the, the chief rabbinate's monopoly over Orthodox marriage. Um, but let's just sort of go up to thirty thousand feet here. Let's talk about what's happening about religion in Israel. And you can either represent yourself or represent Chupot, but you're a person that thinks about this a tremendous amount. And there's a lot of people that say, you know, what we wouldn't have all of this if Israel had a separation of religion and state. If you just kind of bifurcated the two, then you would look more like America and people will do what they want to do and the state will recognize civilly recognized marriages and so forth. But as a Jewish state, is that a good idea, a bad idea? Where should we, from somebody with your worldview, where should we be heading as a society to maximize both the Jewishness or to guarantee the Jewishness of the state, to make sure that if somebody is not eligible to be married, like because they're mamzerim, they're a child born from an adulterous relationship or 
the second marriage then when the first one wasn't properly terminated. We have certain social needs to make sure that certain standards are met. On the other hand, we want it to be you know, a free market, an open market, an embracing kind of Jewish life which would bring people in. Where should we be heading as a society? So, personally, I'm not for separation of religion and state in Israel. Um, but what I would say is I'm for separation of halacha and state. So, Israel, I'm a Zionist, and Israel was built as a Jewish state. And in that, the, 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 um, the official language needs to be Hebrew. And we have to observe Shabbat as our day of rest. And we have to celebrate the, the Jewish holidays. And, um, and I even think there might even be place for a chief rabbinate, perhaps something similar to the presidency of Israel, something which is, serves a ceremonial role. As a, as, a, as a country which has an ethnic, a very clear ethnic identity, which has a religious side to it. But I think the religious side needs to be really in the, um, in the, solely in the, in the private domain. Um, and I think that the, 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 you know, if, there, if there is to be any legislation over issues which pertain to halakha, it should only be in order to protect the interests of people who choose to observe halakha, but not force halakha on people who choose not to. Um, so it's not easy to build those sort of mechanisms. Uh, but, but the work is being done by, by, by very effective think tanks like Ne'emane Torah Ve'avodah and Itim. I'm mentioning the names of the organizations just for listeners who are familiar. The Israel Democracy Institute, there's work being done by, by legislative think tanks to, to design legislation which could, you know, for instance, offer different tracks. So you could have different tracks of marriage. In other words, we want to make sure that anyone who is married in accordance with halakha, if they get divorced, also get divorced in accordance with halakha. That they also arrange for a halakhic divorce document called a get. So that the children of any subsequent marriage are not mamzerim and unable to marry any Jew at any time. Correct. So it would be, it would be clearly protective of the interests of Orthodox Jews in Israel that there should be a system which kept track of how people got married and defined how they, how they would get divorced based on their choice of marriage track. So that's the sort of creative legislation which I think needs to be explored in each of these areas. In Kashrut as well, you know, we, when the Supreme Court heard the case, and by the way, the Supreme Court upheld the, the monopoly of the chief rabbinate on the word kosher. In other words, and that, by the way, is the change that, that maybe is in the wind right now. Um, but, but, you know, when we sat in the sessions and I listened to secular Supreme Court justices, even a Druze, Supreme Court Justice, um, um, considering, you know, weighing all the issues, um, there, was a, there was a strong case to be made that it's in the interest of protecting the kosher consumer that there should be regulation on what does the word mean that they should know. And, uh, you know, those people, I, I believe that in, in New Jersey and New York, there's also been legislation which has defined what the word, what the word kosher means. So the... the there is room for protecting the, the interests of the different interest groups, but I don't believe that there's room for controlling, uh, for, for the government of Israel to tell somebody who defines kashrut differently than I do, that they have no legal way to regulate their, their interpretation of kashrut, or to tell an Israeli citizen that they can't marry the person they choose how they choose to. I mean, that's... That's just, it, it, it's so counter not only to my, to my modern Western democratic values, it's counter to my understanding of how halacha and Torah is meant to work. It's meant to work, it's meant to be something which is chosen. Um, you know, I would even say theologically, um, God is not interested in people who are being forced to observe, to observe his law. 
Um, you know, if, if, if an entire society were to make that choice, you know, the whole Jewish people said that we will, we, will, uh, we will observe it and then we'll hear the explanations as they did in Mount Sinai, um, then uh, we might live in a different world. But today we live in a world where, where um, basically it, it puts Israel in the category of some of the darkest regimes in the world, which, are, which, which, which force people to, um, to uh, conduct their lives in ways that they don't believe in the most private private areas. How do we get there? In other words, I mean, those are pretty strong words. It, it puts Israel in the category of some of the darkest regimes in the world. Um, I don't disagree with you, but it's just it's it's a kind of a it's a very heavy way of, of saying it. Uh, we had a period when the chief rabbinate in Israel was not a Haredi rabbinate. I mean, we just have a new president now, Buzi Herzog, whose grandfather was the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel. Very traditional guy, an incredible halachic scholar, but I don't think you would really call him Haredi. Ed Shlomo Goren, who is by no means Haredi. How did we end up in a world where 70-something years into the state, many people just take it as a matter of course that you're going to have as your chief rabbis people who typically their children are not going to the army, people who are of, let's say, not passionately Zionist in the classic way. How did we get here? Well, first of all, first of all, I think it needs to be. I, 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 I want to kind of balance out what I said before about about Israel being a dark regime, because I mean, even if you look at the status of Yudoim B'tzibur, which you've spoken about, the common law status in Israel, um, um, gay couples have had almost all the rights that a married couple has in Israel because of the legislation which allows couples to live together under common law. So there, so it's true that there's no gay marriage in Israel, and, and that's and it's true that that's discriminatory um, because. A, a couple who live under common law cannot adopt, and that today is the big issue for the homosexual community in Israel: is the, is the fact that they're not being allowed to to um, to adopt children. And surrogacy until recently, but that may be changing. That's right. You know, there's a process of changing with surrogacy, but it's so it, everything has to be seen in context. And um, you know, whereas I wouldn't perform a gay wedding, I'm proud to live in a country which does give rights to gay couples who who um, who deserve those rights. The um, the question of how we got here, in order to appreciate um, how we got here, and also how difficult it's going to be to move the needle, the the political equations really have to be have to be understood. Um, and this this is something which which you yourself, because of your work and advocacy around the Arab-Israeli conflict, um, you know, are very much aware. Um, Israelis go to the polls first and foremost um, because uh, in in the context of the Arab-Israeli conflict, and second in the context of economics. Um, hardly any Israelis go to the polls on the issue of issues of religion and state. Um, other than one community, there is one community in Israel which goes to the polls um, on issues of religion and state, and that is the ultra-Orthodox community. Um, to some extent, maybe the modern Orthodox community, which which today leans to the right. The Kippah Ruga, the, the, the religious Zionists in Israel today, also lean right um, to a large extent. So... Right, right in terms of halacha, in terms of Jewish law, they're they're conservative in terms in terms of Jewish law. Um, so, the the bottom line is is that because we're dealing with legislation, it it boils down to how many members of Knesset are going to put their 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 seat on the line over an issue of religion and state. And because they know Israelis don't go to the polls on issues of religion and state, it becomes a secondary agenda. Um, and, and therefore, the religious parties, the ultra-Orthodox parties and the religious parties can set, can, set the, um, can set the national agenda and basically determine the outcomes of all the votes. Um, 
the Supreme Court of Israel is also um, very hesitant um, to act on issues of religion and state because Israeli law clearly gives the mandate to the Israeli chief rabbinate. So without changing the law, it becomes very difficult to change the interpretation of the law. And the only times that the Supreme Court have intervened are in gross um, and vagrant violations of human rights. Um, there they have intervened. But when it comes to the to, to more subtle issues, for instance, they upheld the, the monopoly of the chief rabbinate over the word kosher up until now. Um, and, and even though they didn't like it, and they were very clear that they didn't like it, but they said there's no way to change it without going back to the legislative branch. So the, um, I, I think for me the work is, you know, if we, if we ask, um, you know, how, how can we change this, the work is educating the Israeli public, and the work is building movements. And that's, that's how I really see my work. Uh, the, on the one hand, we're solving problems for individuals, but really the work is building movements, building, building public awareness. Most Israelis don't recognize the extent to which these things impact them. Because until you're getting divorced, or until your child falls in love with someone whose Judaism is being questioned, even though they're fully Israeli, um, you don't imagine that it's something which impacts you. But when it does come to impact you, it comes to bite you in the biggest way. And, and if Israelis can be made to appreciate that and understand that, um, then I think we can begin to see some, some shifts in voting patterns. Um, I want to I want to I want to say one more thing, um, which I think is really important, and that is, there is, um, at the same time as these legal battles are going on, there's a renaissance, of, of interest, in the in the, the general Jewish public, specifically I would say in um, in, in um, secular Israeli circles, um, of of interest in Jew Jewish identity. Um, what's called Jewish renewal here, but Jewish renewal in the States um, speaks to people of Zalman Shachter, Shalomi, of blessed memory. So that's the, uh, the um, when we say Jewish renewal here in Israel, what we mean really is to some extent what conservative and reform Judaism created in the United States here is being born, I would say, over the last two decades in Israel, and it's, and it's growing, and there are more and more Israelis who are, who are um, discovering that there's something rich to be to be found in their in, in their tradition and their Jewish roots, and um, and I think that, that that's also very valuable. And that the the um, this, and I would say it's happening despite the, the the Israeli chief rabbinate, and it's happening to the credit of a lot of great organizations who are working to encourage and support that process. Um, to a large extent, also inspired and supported by the North American Jewish community and its investments here in Israel. So I was just going to ask you about that by way of beginning to wrap up our conversation. Obviously, you're not a government-funded organization. That goes without saying. So it's all private philanthropy? It's all private philanthropy, including, by the way, the families and, and couples who get married with us. So we don't charge, but we do invite, invite them to donate and support the cause. Um, the, the vast majority of our support is, is, is North Americans, um, some, some who live here, private, private supporters who live here. Um, private supporters in, in the United States. We're also supported by foundations, the Schusterman Foundation, um, the Chicago Federation, um, the Israeli um, Religious Expression Platform, which is a coalition of, um, of North American federations who support, um, who support our work and similar, similar organizations here in Israel. And, um, and also, uh, and also we, we, have, we, have, we have a fair amount of small, small supporters in, in, in the States. I travel, um, of course, with, in, in the context of COVID, I haven't traveled in a while, 
but my part of my routine is speaking about this work in, 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 in American Jewish communities. Um, by the way, something else which I think um, you're, you're uniquely positioned to, to appreciate, and I think you, and I think I've heard you say as well, um, the um, a, a, a lot of young North Americans who have been very disenchanted um, with Israel because of um, issues which they find challenging um, can can be can be reengaged when they're when when they're introduced to the grassroots activism that happens in this country, um, and this is something which I said I said to many um, birthright groups even under the uh, under the, the the Trump government, um, I said to them you know. Are we always going to, going to judge countries based on their policies and whether we identify with their policies or not? Because because you know, you know maybe I should boycott American products if Donald Trump is the president. If I don't identify with with his with his policies, it's very important that 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 the diverse uh, spectrum of opinions in the United States be introduced uh -huh. to the diverse spectrum of opinions here in Israel in order to in order to realize. That Israel is not the sum of its current government, um, but 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 really it's a, it's it's a, it's a vibrant and dynamic uh, country with with so much potential. No matter how, no matter where you place yourself on the political spectrum, and um, and so I, I make I make it a, I make a point of traveling across the U.S. and speaking about this 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 this, this program. Um, if there are listeners who want to reach out to me through through um, um, through you or through the, through the the podcast platform, I'd be happy to be put in touch with them. The, um, the opportunity to support our work, but also the opportunity to introduce our work to your community and learn about what's happening here in Israel and maybe once again get your, your, your young membership excited about, about, um, about where Israel could go and what it could be. Because right, the conflict is, uh, whatever it is, it's not uh, uplifting for anyone. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right. The conflict is kind of the elephant in the room. It's grinding, it's wearying, it's depressing. Um, but as you point out, there are just an, there's an enormous array of profoundly exciting, interesting, uplifting, uh, inspiring projects going on here in the cultural world, the religious world, the social world. Yeah, I would say in, in addition to the conflict, I think even in the issue, issues of religious expression, the, the, the vast PR that the Battle of the Women of the Wall have, rece have, have received has painted Israel as a very demonic country when it comes to issues of religion and state. And in some ways it is, but, but as disenchanting as some of these laws can be um, to discover the richness in civil society of creativity and diversity and expression. I mean, even, even the Women of the Wall's activism um, can be viewed uh, not as a turnoff from Israel, from Israel, but as an ex as, as as something which 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 is um, which is exciting that such a, a thing um, can, a process can exist. Well, a lot of our listeners probably would have been surprised before our conversation to hear that here you are an Orthodox rabbi building an organization, and you slipped in kind of by the by. When of course we have women performing weddings as well. It's not what they commonly associate with the Israeli Orthodox rabbinate. There's lots of different varieties of it. There's a tremendous amount of really extraordinary things happening here and you're an amazingly important part of it. So I'm grateful to you for taking the time to chat with us and tell us about your work and wish you a lot of continued success. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure being here. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.